Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we would see Jesus. Open eyes, open ears, knock things out of the way. that we might see more of his glory. We pray in his wonderful name. Amen. This morning, the parable of the sower. The word of the kingdom, Jesus tells us, is what it's about. had a wonderful teacher amongst many along the way who said one of the most helpful things uh, in trying to prepare to preach or to teach is simply this, when in doubt, look at the text. Uh, So often uh, that isn't what we do first. And so as we look at Matthew 13, uh, I point you first to the first three words of Matthew 13. I've heard a lot of sermons on this parable uh, and maybe preached one or two that neglected those three words, which simply say, that same day. Why did Matthew put that in there? That same day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Uh, the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. What happened earlier that day? If you've got uh, a Bible and paper or on your computer or your phone or your tablet, uh, you might uh, skip back to chapter 12. We're going to, in a blur, just look at uh, what happened in chapter 12 that same day. Uh, That day was the Sabbath. They were going through the grain fields. His disciples plucked heads of grain. The Pharisees rebuked them for violating the Sabbath. The Pharisees were really good at rebuking. And Jesus reminded the Pharisees of the time King David's men entered the temple, eating the bread of the presence, which was only for the priests. And then Jesus said to the Pharisees, something greater than the temple is here. I don't think the Pharisees thought that was a nice way to start their day. Jesus said, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Whoa. And then the zinger, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. This press and release of Jesus announcing the kingdom and announcing in hidden and revealed ways his presence. Jesus goes to synagogue and he heals a man with a withered hand, telling them that even they would lift their sheep out of a pit on the Sabbath. But Matthew tells us the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. We're in Matthew 13, only halfway through the Gospel of Matthew. And yet that's already the hostility, the resistance. 
Jesus leaves the synagogue, heals a demon-possessed, blind, mute man, and fending off their charges, he says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They'd been saying he had an evil spirit. And whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Whoa. Unless you get lost there, I think that's not that hard to understand. The Spirit of God came to glorify Christ, to reveal, to open hearts, to convict of sin. And if you resist the Spirit's work to have your eyes and your heart open, then there's nowhere else to go. Jesus is saying, you can have difficulty with the Son of Man, but if you fight against the Spirit of God, there's nowhere else to go. Jesus rebukes his adversaries, calling them a brood of vipers. Whoa, I thought that was just John the Baptist. He speaks of trees as being revealed as to their real nature by their good or bad fruit, and the importance of of even our most careless words. Oof. Scribes and Pharisees ask him for a sign. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. I think that's chapter 7 in Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I'm just kidding. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He speaks of the evil spirits that have filled this generation. Chapter 12 ends as Jesus' mother and brothers approach, and with Jesus' words, here are my mother and my brothers, as he motioned to those that were listening and hearing the teaching of the kingdom of God. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus' disciples had already had quite a Sabbath. They'd heard kingdom-announcing words. They'd seen kingdom power revealed. They'd seen hostility against their master. They'd seen even Jesus giving kingdom followers priority among, above his mothers and brothers. And if you were amongst those disciples, your head would have been spinning. And then Matthew 13 begins that same day. Jesus came out of a house that he'd gone into, and he sat down next to the lake, maybe to be quiet for a while. If you've ever been uh, near a nice lake, let alone the Sea of Galilee, uh, it's a nice place to sit. There are mountains, high mountains, snow-peaked on the northeast uh, corner. There are hills, uh, uh, the horns of Hatim up behind you, and the soil slopes down to the lake, and it is beautiful, a great place to relax. But crowds began to gather around our Lord Jesus, and so he decided he would teach, and the only way to teach with that many crowds was uh, he motioned for a boat, got in the boat, and pulled out a certain distance from the land and sat down. Rabbi sat down to teach. Boy, have we Protestants got that wrong. (laughs) And the crowd stood up. But it's a natural amphitheater, the way the land uh, slopes up and Jesus is in the boat and uh, you can hear very well. And as Jesus begins to teach, this is Matthew 13, that same day, 
Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, there are some words in between, and we'll come to them in our second heading. But I want to jump ahead to verse 18 and hear what the disciples do after Jesus' intervening words. They ask Jesus, what does this mean? So Jesus says not to the crowd, but to his disciples, Matthew 13, 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit, and he yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. I misspoke first heading, not second heading. First heading, the word of the kingdom, that's what Matthew calls it, as Jesus explains it. Mark and Luke simply say the word of God. The word of the kingdom newly sown is God's unique son. The king and his kingdom. The kingdom comes in the king. The king is here. Now, many, no doubt, had hope for Jesus and his teaching. He was winsome. He was attractive. He told neat stories. People still like pastors that tell neat stories. But the hope that they had likely included wanting to hear words that God was again going to plant Israel in the promised land. Remember, they'd been yanked out into exile. Only some of them had come back. They'd have tough times during the years of the Maccabees, the heroes of Israel that tried to win things back. But Rome is in charge. Israel's not really in the land fully, and they're not in charge. And they're hoping that this parable of sowing is planting Israel in the land again after all the exiles and troubles and bringing back the glory days and making them even better. But that's not what Jesus does in his stories. He does talk about the better. If you sang with mind and heart our wonderful hymns and songs today, you already sang about it, that which is to come. In Jesus' interpretation, his parable shifts from 
naming simply a sower, even though he keeps that title in 1318. But the beginning focus shifts to anyone who hears the kingdom and the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. That's the first thing Jesus explains. What's this about? The first three soils are about those who hear the word of the kingdom and don't understand them. They're really all one thing, even though he divides it into three. Don't get lost in thinking of the three. Think one. And don't let the agricultural methods get in the way. It seems likely that in Jesus' day, from what we know, uh, that farmers farmed in different ways. Sometimes they scattered the seed and then plowed. Sometimes they plowed and scattered the seed and then plowed again. But I don't think Jesus is very concerned about that. I think he's saying, uh, keep it simple. Because he's after the application and not the details of the story. So let's look at the contrast between the initial parable and then Jesus' interpretation. The trajectory of the seeds which, quote, fell along the path in verses 3 and 4 is described as what has been sown in his heart. So the goal of the seed is the heart. The action of the birds devouring is described as, quote, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So the concern is the heart. The seed doesn't take root and produce. The evil one snatches it away. And the evil one is described elsewhere by Jesus as a liar from the beginning, so it's not surprising that the liar would blind people to the kingdom, stopping up ears lest they hear the word of the kingdom. In verses 5 and 6, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. And in verses 20 and 21, Jesus describes the seed sown on the rocky ground as this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And the soil around the Sea of Galilee, it's not, uh, there are a lot of rocks on the land in Israel. Uh, the rabbi said God had uh, three bins of rocks and he dumped two of the three on Israel uh, when he made the world. But uh, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about shallow topsoil with layers of rock quickly underneath it. So the seed begins to prosper, but there's no way for roots to go down. That's just the image. But the meaning is, here's a shallow heart, not prepared for the deep-rooted things of God, a rocky heart. Because of the rootlessness of this heart, the word is not understood, and he falls away, pushed from the word by, of the kingdom by trials and worldly pressures. Verses 7 and 22, other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Jesus says, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Lesser desires get in the way. C.S. Lewis, uh, don't remember the exact quotation, but is basically saying we settle for such little things, for such lesser things, for such lesser desires when we're made for the weight of glory, the substance of beautiful things to come. Other seeds fell on, verse 8, good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus, as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. That's 
the key phrase, don't forget it. He who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields on one case a hundredfold and another 60 and another 30. Uh, uh, there's a lot of dancing around in the commentaries over uh, what multifold uh, crops came in uh, Italy and Sicily and what they were in Egypt and there was more in Israel. But I think it's pretty clear in Jesus' point, and Josephus talks about it, uh, that when you're talking 160 and 30 at the least, this is no normal seed and this is no normal soil. I think Jesus is pointing out uh, the seed is God's word, God's working, and God's been working on the soil. Well, the disciples likely had ears much like the crowd, desiring replanted in the land Israel, and we saw Judas get disappointed with Jesus because he didn't bring the kingdom. So they asked for an interpretation. Now we're getting ready for the second point. Verse 10, then the disciples came and said to Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says. Just before we go there, uh, what's the phrase I told you not to forget? that they may have understanding. So it's not too surprising that when Jesus reads from Isaiah that what the people have, they get more, is understanding. He's applying what he said. And those that have understanding will get more, and those that don't, they're going to lose even the significance of the little understanding that they have. Why is that the case? Look at the rest of uh, the text, second part of verse 14, quoting Isaiah. You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. We'll try to provide some insight into that in our second point. But remember, we're talking about Isaiah's day, and we're talking about the stopped-up ears of the people of Israel during Isaiah's day. So, second point. Jesus' reason for speaking in parables is descriptive of reality far more than that of direct judgment. What he's saying is one who understands that God's Son has now come will receive still more. Those who by blindness, shallowness, and lesser desires keep the true seed out of their hearts will lose even what they have. Let me say that another way. When I say it's descriptive, it's not that the results of Jesus' teaching through parables are desirable or that God or we should delight in them. It's not that we should delight that they will never hear and that they will receive judgment. That's just the way it is. 
It's not that God wants it that way, but it's the result of how Israel has responded to prophet after prophet after prophet that he has sent to them. And how they've deliberately gone off track over and over and over again. It's that these results are inevitable for people with stopped up ears and callous hearts. The way to get it to change is unstop your ears, clean them out, cry out to God, unstop my ears, dig out my ears. Isaiah said it, give me the ears of disciples, dig out my ears. It's a phrase right there in the Hebrew. Dear God, take the calluses off my heart that I might become tender. But if we don't, reality sets in. Messiah's coming will bring new life to all who have open ears and hearts. But for those with hardening of the attitudes and the heart arteries, it will further dull their ability to hear Jesus as wisdom itself. And he writes, says the Israel of his day, Jesus' day was wicked and hard-hearted, and though his message did contain the promise of salvation, that promise could only come true on the other side of an awesome judgment. The great trees would have to come down before the new shoot could start to grow, Isaiah 10. God would cut the tree down and prune it further and further until there was only a stump left, but he would then reveal that there was a new life hidden in the stump, Isaiah 6. And I think when we struggle with Paul's teaching in Romans 9 through 11, that Paul is talking about the fact that the gospel is both good news, but it's also judgment on those who've had the word of God and don't hear. And sometimes we go back to the stump and the shoot of Jesse bears fruit. And there will be a day when many in Israel's train will return to their Messiah. The reality is hard to hear, isn't it? As God proclaims the kingdom of God in and through His Son and His Son's disciples, He proclaims not only mercy but judgment. I want to say to you that the parables are not so much difficult as they are hard. They are hard sayings. There's a mystery, but they're hard for us because we don't want to go where they're going. We don't want to use the mirror of the Word of God that they bring to us. Suffering, death, resurrection, yes, resurrection. They're about what we're not ready for without God's working. Uh, Thy kingdom come, as we prayed this morning, often plays out differently than men and women, boys and girls, empires and nations think it should, doesn't it? It's wise to study history. And it's wise to see how the church nation states that saw themselves as the king as the head of the church uh, got surprised by the mysteries of God's kingdom. It was that way for the disciples. Their roadmap comes in chapters 14 through 17 and that way is by hearing and understanding, simply sitting in church or an occasional Bible study. Being entertained by Christian music is not enough. It takes care and thought and stones being moved out of the way in our heart and new topsoil being placed on the stony ground and thorns being uprooted. Uh, I put three headings on your outline. I just want to touch on them. There's some things about them in the questions 
which I urge you to look at, whether your life group does or you do it as an individual. The outline, by the way, if you didn't get one this morning, you can get one on the way out, and we're putting them online. They're easy to get, though, to print them out. You've got to switch from uh, layout to landscape mode. Everybody got that? Everybody go switch from portrait to landscape mode, and, and they'll print out real nice on your page. That was free. You, you don't have to pay for that. Number one, the world knows God, the Scripture says, Romans 1, His power. But it wants to keep Him at a distance. The world is God, the world says. Uh, We are not only the world. Remember that song, some of you who are closer to my age, we are the world. uh, And the world is us. And we move into Eastern thought. And uh, uh, Peter Jones is a wonderful professor at Westminster West in uh, Encinitas, and uh, he, by the way, went to high school with one of the Beatles. I can't remember, uh, and and Peter was in a band too, I think, but his band didn't take off like uh, the Beatles did. But he has two wonderful terms that are very helpful: that the world's way is the way of oneism, and anything that pushes your thinking in the direction of everything is one is at war with God, because the Scripture teaches twoism that there's a creator and there are creatures. And Calvin understood so well and the apostles understood so well and men and women who have loved the Lord and loved the Scriptures know very well that the gap between God and us while there are connections is so vast that only God can come from His side to us. And so the way to evaluate the stuff that's getting tossed at you on the television and social media and other places, is to ask, does it point towards one-ism or two-ism? Does it really acknowledge there's something transcendent? Stephen, I loved your words this morning, point us to the fact that, that when we try to keep it on our own, we want everything to be one-ism, we can do it all, we can reach the transcendent, we fall on our face over and over and over again, which points to the transcendent. We know there are longings in our heart that go beyond that. Number two, in that brief inner outline, to Israel, God was made known. And think about that. Many in Israel loved God's law, the Torah. But what happened? Human desire delighted in being the chosen more than loving the chooser. And Israel got haughty because they were the ones with the rules. They were the only ones with the right rules. And so they became God in place of God because they had God's rules. Every pastor in his wrong mind goes there. And it's only the Spirit of God's right mind that keeps pastors and sessions and popes and councils from forgetting that being chosen means you love the chooser and you love whom the chooser loves and you don't anoint yourselves. And that's why so many of the Jews were blinded and their ears closed. Many rejected God's Son because they knew that His King had too inclusive a kingdom. I mean, Adam and Eve, they wanted to be God, but uh, Jonah, Jesus brought up. And I mean, do you remember what Jonah's about? Jonah's called by God as God's prophet uh, to go where? Nineveh. Nineveh was Israel's friend, right? No, worst enemy. And, and God told Jonah, go to Nineveh and, and preach judgment. And Jonah goes everywhere else, 
and he finally tells God uh, why he didn't want to go. He says, if, if I go there and preach judgment, it's just like you, that after I do that, you'll make a fool out of me and you'll forgive him. And I don't want to be made a fool of, so I'm just not going to be your prophet. Now, God has his ways of getting prophets to open their mouths, and Jonah's is quite complex. So Jonah goes and preaches judgment, and God does just what Jonah said God was going to do, and God forgives Nineveh. And so what does Jonah do? The, the, word, the, the book ends on such a positive note. If you've read it recently, Jonah goes up on a hillside, and he's in the hot sun, and he's hot, and he wants some comfort, so God puts a plant over him that gives him shade, and then God kills the plant because Jonah needs more heat and light until his heart becomes like Jesus' heart, and he loves his enemies. And, and that's why we mess it up so badly. That's why Israel messed it up. And in Peter, and I've got to move very quickly towards the end, Peter taught us that the steps of Jesus lead us to treasure Jesus' ways of treasuring strangers and even enemies. Those that are hurting us, we're told to honor Christ in our heart as Lord, to give an answer, but to do it with gentleness and respect. We're to treat our adversaries, those who hurt us, those who condemn us, those who make fun of Christians, we are to treat with gentleness. Oh, I like that so much. I want to go take a boat away from this place, planet Earth sometime. God, just take me home if I'm supposed to love people that way. But that's keeping in the steps of Jesus. What is it that enables people not to be at root troubled by, troubled by troublers? What is it that allows us to show gentleness and respect even for adversaries and enemies? It's having the new seed, the new life of the kingdom planted in us, the new life of Jesus, not as an add-on, but as reality, not Jesus in the background, but Jesus in the foreground, not religion, but a king received into our hearts and us becoming his very willing subjects because he is so beautiful and so generous and so kind. And there is no one like him. And when they become like him, there is no one like his followers. Brothers and sisters, there's no people on earth I would rather be a part of than the people of God in Christ. Look past the criticisms. We deserve some of them. But there's no one like us when we walk in Jesus' steps. And that's why Jesus says that his disciples who hear thirdly and understand the kingdom word see and understand what the prophets long for. They see God's Son's glory and they see it multiplying abundantly. Blessed are your eyes and ears. The references to the Old Testament prophets, 1 Peter 3, who look forward to what they couldn't see yet and yet we have seen it. It's in the question, so I'm only going to take a moment to highlight it, but read through not just chapter 12, but read through chapters 14 through 17. If you want to understand what Jesus is beginning to teach his disciples in the parable of the sower, which most students of the Gospels understand uh, is the foundation for the other parables, you'll see that in Matthew 14 comes the feeding of the 5,000. Why is that such a big deal? Because the feeding of the 5,000 shows the disciples that Jesus is the greater than Moses. 
through whom God fed the people in the wilderness. But he's not only greater than Moses, he's the one that multiplies the bread and multiplies the fishes. Wait a minute, that's God's job. Yeah, now you're getting the point. Now you're hearing. Now you're understanding. And then you come to chapter 16, and Peter confesses that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And Peter's getting really excited, so Jesus tells Peter what his being the Son of God means. It means I'm going to go into Jerusalem, they're going to cause me all kinds of problems, and they're going to kill me. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. That's what being the living Son of God is like in this kingdom. And then you go into chapter 17, and we have the transfiguration where God speaks from heaven as Moses and Elijah are there, and God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Do you notice how many people want to talk about Jesus but not listen to him? Are you ever that way? If you're going to understand the kingdom, you've got to listen. And immediately after the transfiguration, he comes down the mountain, heals somebody, and again says, I've got to go to Jerusalem, suffer, and be killed, and rise from the dead. That's chapter 17. So these realities add depth to Jesus' explanation that the seed sown is the word of the kingdom. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. This is the word of the kingdom, and its king is multiplying before your very eyes and ears. And even as we see things decaying in America, and we think the world's falling apart, and in some ways it is, The seeds of the kingdom are just going out like crazy. I mean, there have never been a time when more millions have been coming to Jesus and loving him in the two-thirds world than there is today. I mean, the numbers are greater than they've ever been. We just forget that it's not always, always supposed to be about us in our little narrow slice of things. I remember years ago, Os Guinness uh, I think it was at a conference Marinelle and I were at out in Portland, uh, had come back from China where he was raised as a missionary kid during the turmoil of the communist uh, wars. Uh, and he had just been back to China, and if you don't know us, I don't uh, have time to tell you about him, but he's a brilliant scholar. Uh, he was meeting with the top education leaders of China in the government. And in a question and answer period, he was asked, Why is America leaving her foundational spiritual roots at the very time when we and the Chinese educational student uh, culture are trying to understand them? And boy, have we gone down, down, down in the last 40 years. Because our hearts have become more calloused as a nation and our ears have become more stopped up. And God, in his mysterious way, and maybe even some men that were in that room and women with, John, with us, have come to Christ, I'm sure, as they've seen glimmers of the kingdom in things. The answer lies in the parable of the sower and the powerful seed and the stopped-up ears and the callous hearts. In closing, let us pray for family members and co-workers and neighbors, that God would unstop their ears. We can't do it. We can be (sighs) irritants by love (laughs) uh, that cause them to ponder. We can be pebbles in their shoes by 
God giving us grace to, to love and, and treat them, but we can't do it. But we want them to know that God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Alan Noble uh, wrote a book last year, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. And he's, starting to, he's trying to show how everything we do without tying it to God becomes inhuman. We become less. Noble writes this. This is the fundamental lie of modernity that we are our own. Until we see this lie for what it is, until we work to uproot it from our culture and replant a conception of human persons as belonging to God and not ourselves, most of our efforts at improving the world will be glorified band-aids. The first question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism reads, what is your only comfort in life and in death. Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both for life and for death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Show us that while we in our culture rightly in some ways cry out for justice, we are the ones who are unjust towards you claiming to be our own. And we will always be led into injustice to some or others as we run and hide from you. Keep us from hiding from ourselves and from you. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear through Jesus' cross. Lead us not into temptation that will harden us further. Deliver us from the evil one and from our own callous hearts and stopped up ears.